Uh, it's great to be able to be together and always look at God's word, and especially because it's officially 2021, right? Happy New Year to everyone, and uh, we can finally say that 2020 is over, which may mean uh, more for some people than others, but again, it's great to be able to uh, enter into a brand new year together, uh, even if it is a little bit chillier. It's a great time. And, you know, it's always wonderful to be able to have these New Year's um, because I think for a lot of us, myself included, even though it's just one day later, right, even though the weeks continue on as they usually do, uh, the New Year always feels like a time of resetting, right? Uh, Whatever things might have happened the previous year, whatever regrets or mistakes we may have made, uh, we can always start fresh when it comes to January 1st or January 3rd in our case, Right. For a lot of us, especially in the, the Christmas season, we enjoy eating a lot of food and we quickly regret because suddenly we've gained a little bit more weight. The, the belt maybe doesn't buckle the same way it once did. And we say at the beginning of the year, we're going to start working out, right? I'm going to get on the treadmill. I'm going to buy a Peloton or uh, whatever new thing people want to get into. I'm going to uh, have a new me. Right? In, in different ways. For some of us, it could be that you spend a little bit too much time on your phone or on Netflix or uh, watching different movies or TV shows, and you realize that you wasted a lot of time, and so you, you say, in this year, I'm going to make things right. I'm going to use my time in a more productive manner. I'm going to not waste it as much. I'm going to really be productive and, and do something with all the free time that I have. And even as Greg was just mentioning, uh, we can have this kind of reset mentality when it comes to the Word of God. A lot of us started 2020 thinking this is the year that I'm finally going to really dive into God's word. I'm going to study the scriptures for myself and maybe I've never read it all the way through. So this is going to be the the year that I'm going to do it. And then for some reason in February or March or August or maybe September, you start to fall off in your reading. And you say, okay, now it's finally a new year. This is the year that I'm going to really dive into God's word. We even have this fancy new app plan that we're all doing together. And if you haven't checked it out, it's interesting because you can literally see who else is on the plan. You can even see where people have read so far. This is even kind of a force accountability on its part. But maybe you say, okay, this is the year that I'm going to do it. I think one of the issues we often run into is we often start reading God's word at the beginning of the year if that hasn't been a a regular mentality. And then for some reason we fall off. We start to feel guilty or or discouraged. But for one reason or another, we don't really focus on it as much as we know that we should. And there's many reasons why this happens to so many people, even in the church. But one of them, I think, is because, you know, we, we believe in the importance of Scripture. We believe in the importance of reading the Bible, but we don't really view it as precious. It's not something that we look at saying, this is my lifeblood. This is essential for my life. It's the most valuable thing I have in my entire life. And just this last week, I was reading about this uh, true story of a man who was traveling through Africa. He was just checking out different parts of the area as an explorer. And he had gone to an area where precious gems were actually very common. It's where a lot of the, the mining and digging was done. And as he went to one small village, he uh, was exploring there and saw a bunch of kids who were just playing a little game, right? And so as he got closer, he realized that they were playing the game of marbles, just flicking little rocks, trying to knock the other ones over in, in their own kind of version of it. And as he got closer and closer, he was shocked because he realized that they were actually using diamonds in their game. Right? They were literally flicking diamonds at one another, trying to knock the other marbles over, playing a, a very silly child game. And he was shocked. He's like, you can't play marbles with diamonds. 
Right? That's way too valuable. It's way too costly. It's too precious. You're not valuing it enough. You can't use something as amazing as diamonds to play some a silly child's game. And yet I think as you're hearing that story, you probably realize that that's so close to many of our mentalities about God's word. Or we don't realize just how valuable and precious it really is. And you, you treat it in this very kind of trite manner where you're not really paying attention to what it really is. Because it is the most precious thing we can have. Right? It is our lamp in this dark world. It is the very voice of God speaking to us every single day. It's the path of eternal life. It is the greatest possible thing we can have. And that's why we need to treat it as such. When we read scripture, as we begin this new year, and even if you're starting to make these kind of resolutions, which maybe you're afraid that you might break come a month or two, the most important thing you can have is to recognize what the Bible is, how precious, how valuable, how costly it is. Because you realize that our mentality today about scripture is so different than all the saints from past generations. And people would do whatever they could to just hold on to one chapter of one letter and memorize it and study it because it was so hard to find. Right? People were killed. They were murdered just to translate it into our language, to bring it into other people's languages. It is something that was held so valuably by every single generation before us. And so we need to see it as such. And the same Bibles that people gave their lives up for is the same dusty book that sits on many of our coffee tables. And so we need to value it. And that's why we're going to be looking at a very helpful passage of Scripture. We're going actually back to the letter of Second Peter, something that we had looked at just a month ago. But we're going to actually be going to the first chapter of this letter. It's going to be Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19 to 21, a, a very famous passage which helps us to understand the nature of God's word. And so for the context, I'm going to actually read starting in verse 16. And here's what Peter says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is indeed God's word. As we look at this passage, let's go to him in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we look forward to this next year, as we try to reset our lives and focus our hearts on worshiping and following you. Even this morning, we pray that you would dig out ears for us to hear from you, that you would soften our hearts, that you would give me clarity of speech, that every single soul listening here in person and online would so grow to love you more and more. And so be with us now as we look at your holy word. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, in this text, there's a lot of ways you can break down 19 through 21, but we're going to look at it in this way as two facts about Scripture. Two facts about why Scripture is indeed the greater and greatest authority we can have. And starting off in verse 19, we're going to see this, that the Bible is a greater certainty. It is a certain word of God. And if you guys were here with us a month ago when we last looked at the letter of 2 Peter, hopefully you remember Peter's main idea. He's trying to address the false teachers of his day. And he was in the uh, older stages of his life. He knew that he was going to die soon. He was going to be in the Lord's presence. And so he's writing his last words, so to speak, of what he wants to remind the people about, the important things to focus on. And he would say that in your midst, you know that there are these false teachers that are beginning to rise. They're distorting God's word. They're, They're twisting its meaning, trying to make it say something else. And he says in this letter and others how these false teachers were trying to undermine the teaching of the apostles. He was trying to say, don't actually listen to the true apostles. You need to listen to us. And they were even twisting facts about who Jesus was and what he was trying to do. And you see this in the very end of this letter that we read last week. In 2 Peter 3.3, he's saying that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, these false teachers are saying, the apostles are saying that Jesus is going to return, that all things are going to come to an end. And yet, look, everything is the same. They're completely wrong. And so Peter recognizes that they were dangerous. They were denying the return of Christ and all of what that means for the judgment of sin. All of what that means for him being the supreme one and especially for what that means for even the apostles' authority. And so this is what Peter's trying to address in this epistle, in his final words, the, re- the reality of Christ's return. And what Peter's doing in this section that we just read is he's trying to argue that indeed we know that Christ will return. We know with certainty that Jesus will come. And he says here in verse 16, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That is that when I told you about his return, I wasn't telling you a fictional story. Over this Christmas break, I watched the new Disney movie, Soul. It was a wonderful cartoon tale, right? It gives us such a perfect uh, depiction of New York City of what it's like to be in the city and on the subway and the, the hustle and bustle that goes on there. A great depictions of the jazz music culture and just the wonderful views of music in general. It's a great movie. But I don't think anyone went into that film thinking this is a biography. Right? We didn't go into thinking this is a real story of a real person. We understood that it was fiction. It was a myth. And real Peter is saying the opposite here. He's saying that when I told you about Christ's return, I wasn't telling you a myth. I was telling you history. I was telling you what is real because I actually saw it. He's saying, I experienced the glories of God. I understood with my own two eyes. I was an eyewitness of his majesty. And Peter is talking about the, no, the event that we know as a transfiguration. One of the most important events in all of Jesus's earthly life. You see this in all of the gospels, but especially in Matthew 17. And you guys remember back in that part of Jesus's life 
where he had just announced to his disciples that he was indeed the Messiah, right? Or actually the disciples were the ones, the ones that told Christ this fact. And so in this time that should have been the, the greatest or the, the highest moment, the greatest moment of revelation, Jesus turns around and says, yes, you are right. I am the Messiah. But what that means is that I'm going to die. Right? You think I'm coming to be this great earthly ruler. I'm going to destroy Rome and make Israel the, the greatest nation ever. But in fact, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to die. And so the disciples were shocked. They're like, what on earth are you talking about? It was the same kind of shock that they would have had if Jesus had said, I'm not actually the Messiah. I'm actually just a man. It's that level of disbelief. And so though they were so incredibly shocked that Jesus wanted to encourage them. And so he takes his three closest disciples. He takes Peter, James, and John onto a high mountain. And he shows them something incredible. And what Peter records and what all the apostles record in their gospels is that suddenly Jesus showed them his divine glory. That his face began to shine like light. That his clothes were as white as light. It was like he was the radiance of the sun. Right? They couldn't believe what they were seeing. Suddenly he was shining before them. And then he saw two different men appear. You saw Moses and Elijah appear before Jesus talking with him. Right, the men who represented the law and the prophets, the two great divisions of the Old Testament. And they were just talking with him like old friends. And what that was symbolizing was that the law and the prophets, all of the Bible, were culminating in the work of Jesus Christ. That the, the writings of Moses, the workings of Elijah, were all pointing to the fact that one day the Messiah will come and Jesus was this Messiah. And Peter, always being unsure, always acting in a way that he shouldn't, just talks to them saying, should we build tabernacles for you guys, right? These were seemingly divine beings. Maybe we should build something here so you can live and dwell with us. In the midst of while he was saying that thought, Yahweh, God the Father, speaks out of a bright cloud, speaking to the people saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well. Please listen to him. They heard the glorious voice of God, the Father. They felt his power and his divine majesty. And it was so powerful that it left Peter, James, and John terrified. Right? It says that they fell down because they didn't know what was going on. They were in awe of the presence. Until suddenly Jesus picks them up saying, do not fear as he always does. And as Peter, James, and John look up, suddenly everything was back to normal. Jesus' divine majesty was no longer seen in a visible way. Elijah and Moses were no longer to be seen. And suddenly they were just on the mountaintop. And though they had seen one of the most amazing sights that a person can behold, as they're going down the mountain, Jesus says, tell no one about this event until all is over. This was one of the greatest moments of human history. It was something that only three men got to witness until we see it recorded in scripture. It's something that Moses longed to see, even just a glimpse of God's glory and something that these three disciples got to see in an even greater way. And the reason why Peter is bringing this up in his passage is he's trying to say that Jesus's return is not a myth. I've seen the divine glory of our Savior. I've seen his divine majesty as that of the Father. I know indeed that Christ will return. That just as Jesus says, I will return in all of my glory. I will come in all of my divinity. Though the false teachers deny that, he's saying, I know it for sure. 
Because I was an eyewitness of his majesty. I saw the glory of God. And that's the same testimony that we see recorded in all the gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That they were eyewitnesses. They experienced God in person through the work and power of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we know that their testimony is authoritative. We know that what they write, what they say about God is true. It is credible. And you can believe his experience on the mounts of the transfiguration. But as we turn to our verse here in verse 19, we see something even more amazing. He says this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. The prophetic word refers to the writings of the prophets, but was also a reference for just all of the scripture of the Old Testament. It was used to talk about the Bible because all of it is prophetic in the sense that it points to the work of the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. And he's saying that now we have, literally, we have the more certain prophetic word. Or literally in the Greek, we have the more sure prophetic word. And when you look at this text, scholars and interpreters take this to mean potentially two different things. Some people will say that our experience at the transfiguration means that the prophecies of the Old Testament are even more certain. And that is a possible meaning. It's definitely implied. There are godly men, godly pastors who take that interpretation. But I think when you look at the grammar in its basic sense in the Greek, it's literally a comparative. Right? Literally what you're reading is he's saying that we have the more certain word, the more sure word. In other words, Peter would be saying, I saw Jesus's divine glory in person. Right? I was there on the transfiguration. I was there in person And so therefore believe my words about his return. But we have something even more reliable. We have something even more certain. We have something even more sure, which is the word of God. And that is that the scriptures, the Bible is even more reliable as a testimony than even Peter's amazing experience. He's saying that you can look back at the the writings of the prophets. You can look back at the prophecies and how God had even written before that he was going to return. And what we know as the day of the Lord, he had promised the day of judgment and salvation. And so, yes, trust my account that I was there to witness Jesus's power and his glory. And yet the Bible speaks even more authoritatively. And that is a profound statement on how we should read scriptures, right? So many of us live in a way that we just say, if only I had a voice from the Lord, if only I I felt him touch my shoulder about what I should do, then I would be able to live life better. If I heard a voice from God, I would be able to deal with the hardships of life. They would be just a little bit more bearable. The difficulties would be a little bit more comfortable. I just need that sense of assurance. But what Peter is saying here is that the the written words of Scripture, the Bible, is even more reliable. It's more authoritative. It's more certain than any kind of experience because the Bible is the very word of God. It's the very voice of Yahweh, as we're going to see in just a little bit from here. The Bible that's on your phone, the Bible that you have on your shelf, The Bible that maybe you have tucked away because you haven't really read it as much as you should is more powerful. It's more certain than anything else in this life because it is God's full revelation. It is enough. And as Peter goes on to say in this passage, it's our only tool for survival. 
Read with me again verse 19. He says this, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He's saying you will do well to pay attention to this, right? This is an incredibly essential and incredibly needed statement. Listen to this. And he paints a beautiful story of the idea that you're walking along a mountain path. You're on a journey somewhere. And yet it is incredibly dark. It is nighttime. And there's no stars in the sky. There's not even a moon. You're walking in pitch black darkness And if you've ever had that experience, which I've only had once or twice in my life, hiking in pitch black dark, it is indeed horrifying. Because every single step you take forward, you're hoping that it's indeed the path you're walking on, but you don't actually know for sure. If you don't have a flashlight, you can't actually see where you're going. And so you don't know for sure if when you're stepping forward, if that's actually the path you should be on. And the New Testament writers talked about darkness often as a metaphor for the, the dangers of sin, for the dangers of this wicked world. Right, you see in Ephesians 5, 8 that Paul says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so when the New Testament writers speak of being in this dark world, they're, they're talking about being in this evil age. That this is the time of the night. This is the time of darkness. This is the time of stumbling. This is the time of temptation. This is the time of false, uh, false teachers where you can actually be persuaded away that this is the time where your soul is indeed threatened. Now you have to be very careful because right now you are walking in this age of darkness where Satan is like the lion who's trying to devour you. He's trying to kill you. And he will do whatever it takes to destroy your soul. And Peter is saying this, that scripture is the one lamp that illuminates our path. The Bible is the one light we have. It's the one source of guidance. It's the one source of clarity and truth that helps us to not stumble in the darkness. And this is probably a reference to that very famous passage in Psalm 119, verse 105. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That in light of this dark world we live in, that scripture is what guides us. It's what helps us to know where to go. It's what banishes the darkness. It's the way that we know God. It's the way that we know truth. It's the way that we can know life. That in this hard world we live in, we can indeed be guided on the path because we have the word of God. And hopefully you remember Kempis's wonderful sermon back in August on 2 Timothy 3.16 about scripture. And now in the Bible, we have everything we need to survive this dark world. And the Bible shows us the path of proper worship. It reveals to us who God is. We see his character. We see his wonderful nature of all who he is and all that he promises to be. That in the word of God, we understand the path of proper holiness. That we know what it means to walk according to God's ways. We know how we're able to avoid Satan's evil schemes. And we know the path of proper ministry. That even as the church today, we know how to help one another. We know how to exhort one another to walk away from the paths of evil, to walk away from their sinful ways and to strive after holiness. 
The Bible is indeed our life raft. It gives us what we need. It is the only way that we can maintain our walk before God. It's the way that we avoid stumbling. And this is what Peter's trying to say here. The Bible is indeed our lamp in the darkness. And that's why we can't live without God's word. It's why that avoiding reading the Bible, it's why not having your quiet times is the first sign of a crumbling life. You think of any real issue that person runs into, any real stumbling they have, any real fall, any real despair, any real darkness they fall into. One of the main signs that always happens is that they neglect God's word. Because when you neglect reading scripture, spending time in God, hearing his voice, you're not having your lamp. You're you're walking, stumbling in the darkness. You're walking on your own in the way that Satan can destroy you. And that's why we need to hold on to God's word. It is the only way we cannot be blurred by the darkness. We need the Bible to see. We need the Bible to assess properly to not be guard, to not be deceived by the lies that our sinful hearts tell us. We need to hold on to it. And Peter goes on in this very wonderful way. He says, we must hold on to our lamp until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He's saying that we have to hold on to the word of God until it is daytime. And you know here that the the morning star was really a description of Jesus Christ. And you see this later on in, in Revelation 22, that Jesus is described as the morning star. And that this daytime is referring to indeed the day of the Lord that Peter and so many writers talk about. He's saying that we know, just like you see in 2 Peter 3 verse 12, that the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The daytime is going to be the end of this era, the end of this time of darkness in which God will finally come back in all of his glory. That Jesus will return in the greatest possible way. And he says this in such a beautiful language. He says that the morning star will rise in your hearts. In other words, that you will experience Jesus' presence in the most profound, personal way. That Christ will return as the sun and you will finally experience his fullness of his glory. That when he returns, it will finally be daytime. When Christ returns, the evil night will finally be purged and we will no longer need to hold on to the lamp, which is the Bible, because we will finally have the sun itself. We need to hold on to God's word while it is still dark, but there is coming a time, there is coming a moment when we will no longer need the lamp because we will have the son of God himself. And it's imagery that rivals the greatest of fantasy stories. In fact, it's the inspiration for every classic fantasy tale. The picture being that a curse has fallen over the land and therefore the night has ruled. That the forces of darkness prevail in this time of night. And yet we hold on until there is a day in which the true sun will rise. Where light will come and banish the curse forever. And then finally it will be daytime. This is a wonderful picture of what God will do in his return. That we have the promise already fulfilled. That Jesus has already conquered over sin and death. And yet, right now, we still live in a dark age. It is still night. 
And so we still need to walk with our lamp. We still need the guidance of the light to help us to navigate this dark world so we will not crumble, so we will not fall, so we will not stumble in this time of darkness. The word of God is what we need as our life raft. It is the most certain thing. It is the thing that is greater than even Peter's experience of the transfiguration. It is the thing that guards our souls. And so in this era, however long we may be in this first age, we hold on to the Bible as the more certain word of God, the most sure revelation of Yahweh, because it is the path of life. It is the lamp that we have to guide our feet so that we can indeed follow after God. We need to view the Bible reading, not just as something we do, not just as something that's nice, not just something that a good Christian does, but as the only way that we can survive. And that if you're not regularly feasting on God's word, your soul is already in peril. You're already at the the whims of Satan working in your hearts. We need this as God's certain word. And the reason that we can trust being so certain as so needed, as so essential, is because of what he says next in verse 20 and verse 21. The Bible is also, it also has a greater source. The reason for Scripture's certainty is because of its divine source. And so that's what you see going into verse 20. It's the continuation of his argument. It's the the reason for why we trust it as a certainty. He says this, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's interpretation, right? First of all, in other words, above all, knowing this, above all, you must understand this. If you want to know why you must read scripture, this is the most important thing that you can grasp. And he says that scripture does not come from someone's own interpretation. And again, that phrase of someone's own interpretation can be taken in, in two different ways that don't change the ultimate meaning. But but some people would take it as Peter saying this, that the false teachers were denying the prophet's ability to understand their revelations from God. In other words, that they heard the voice of Yahweh, but when they delivered it to us in their writings, they didn't always deliver it properly. They were imperfect beings. And some people believe that they're saying that the false teachers denied our ability to interpret scriptures properly, that you're not able to interpret on your own. And though the the main idea is the same either way, I think the first option is most likely because Peter then dives into the true inspiration of the Bible. In other words, he's saying that the prophets didn't just interpret as they want, but, but their writings were not made up by them. It was written by God himself. The reason that the interpretation does not fall on them is because God is the author, as we see here in verse 21. This is the most profound statement about what God's word is here. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let me read that again because it's so crucial. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying this truth, that when the prophets wrote scripture, when people wrote the Bible, they spoke from God. 
That is that God was the source of who was truly speaking. They didn't just write their own phrases. They weren't just saying whatever came to their own heads, but they actually spoke from God and that God was the author of their words. God was the source. He was the true one who was actually speaking. And he says that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, a, a phrase that you see so often in the Old Testament. The idea is that it was like they were picked up by God, that God was the one who was working in them through the Holy Spirit, that every single one of the authors of the Bible were like these boats in which they just lifted up their sails and the winds carried them along in the way that they had to go. Or if you've ever been on vacation, if you've ever been on like a cruise ship and you've been on one of those lazy rivers, the prophets were like those people on those floaty devices who were just sitting there as the, the river carries them along wherever it wants to go. What Peter is trying to say is that God was the true one who worked in them. He was the one who made his inspiration, his revelation known to them. He was the active agent. And that's where we get what we know as the doctrine of inspiration. Right? The divine truth has been given to us in human form. Or as Kempis taught us back in August from, from 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God. And when you read the pages of your Bible, the words of scripture is literally the breath of God. It has come out from him. He has expired his voice to us. And again, Peter's drawing from imagery that any good Jewish student would have known about. That over 3,000 times in the Old Testament, you hear uh, phrases like this. The word of God came to me. The spirit of the Lord spoke to me. God said this to me in a dream. He has revealed this fact to me. Right back in Jeremiah 1 verse 9, he was a very timid person. And Yahweh came and said, I'm going to speak through you. And yet Jeremiah wasn't sure. And so he says this. Then Yahweh put out his hand and touched my mouth. And Yahweh said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah didn't want to speak. He wasn't sure exactly what was going to happen. And so Yahweh says, okay, I will put my words in your mouth. Don't worry about what you're going to say. It is going to be me. I will help you. I will give you my revelation. I am the one who will speak. You hear this again in Mark chapter 12, verse 36, where Jesus is quoting one of the most famous Psalms of the Old Testament, a, a messianic text, which talks about Yahweh's relationship to the Messiah. And you know that very famous passage. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. But here's how Jesus quotes the passage. He says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, right? David, who was writing that very famous Psalm, who was writing scripture, as we know, it says, David in the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus is acknowledging that when David wrote, he wasn't just writing his own words. He wasn't just scribbling whatever came to mind, but that the Holy Spirit carried him. The Holy Spirit spoke through him. Just like the boat lifting up its sail and being carried by the wind. And it's the same message that Peter is saying to us. That when you hear the prophecies, when you hear the, the scriptures of the word of God, it wasn't just left up to their own interpretation. It wasn't just people saying whatever they wanted to, but men spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. 
It is Yahweh who speaks through his people. That is the doctrine of inspiration. And so you know all of the implications as we've heard before about what it means that this is the very word of God. And when you open your Bible, it is indeed the voice of Yahweh speaking to you and to me. When you read it on your phone, when you hear it spoken to in your car when you're driving along, when you open up that old family heirloom Bible and you read those pages that are starting to fall apart, you're not just reading words on a page. You're hearing the very voice of God. And that means, of course, that the Bible is inerrant. That the Bible is incapable of error. That whatever it says on any single matter of history about what happened back in the story of creation, where Israel went along and how they conquered all the nations, or or how Moses died, or how Enoch was lifted up, all those facts are 100% true. There is absolutely no error in it. If indeed the Bible is the voice of God, it means that it is infallible. And it's perfectly trustworthy and true that we can rely on it, that whatever it says about the the path to eternal life is absolutely true. Whatever it says about hell being real is absolutely certain. Whatever it says about Satan trying to crush our souls is true. We believe it to be trustworthy. And the Bible, too, is also authoritative. It tells us everything for how we must live. That if Scripture speaks, you must heed its voice. If it says that you cannot live in sin, you must not live in sin. If it says that that the world was created in seven days, it was indeed created in seven days. If it says that we must worship him, that we cannot have other gods, it means that we cannot have other gods. Wherever scripture speaks, God has spoken, and that is how we lived. And of course, if the Bible is indeed the words of God, and whatever words it has about hope, whatever words it gives about promises, whatever words it has about God bearing our burdens, about loving us, about caring for us, every single one of those statements is fact. And so if you are going through difficult times, if you're wondering what's going to happen in this next year, if you're looking for a word of assurance, you can read the promises of the Bible as truly the comfort of God. Because this is God speaking to you and speaking to me. And as we close out our time this morning, I just want to give us three final implications for how we should actually read God's word. If this is indeed the voice of God, here's what it means for us. Number one, God's word means that we have to read the Bible relationally. There's the importance of reading scripture relationally. As I mentioned before, there are people who for hundreds and hundreds of years live with this kind of fact saying, I just want to hear from God. All right? If I can just be praying and asking him about my future, if I can just feel a touch on my shoulder, if I could just have a dream, if I could just have a vision, or if I could hear the voice of God speak, then I could know for sure that God is with me. But if scripture is indeed the voice of God, and if it is the word of God, That means that this is his message spoken directly to us. It is the the words that he has given to you directly. In other words, and you have to be careful how you take this phrase, but you should approach the word of God as if he is speaking to you in your very room. That whenever you're reading a passage, of course, having to interpret it in its context, it's as if God is speaking with you right there. The sense of his personhood, the sense of his relationship. 
That when you read the pages of God, that is indeed how you build a relationship with him. You know, growing up, I I went to this church that was uh, very famous for its time. There was a very well-known pastor at its helm. And so for many people, they would listen thinking, wow, what a great speaker, what a a great man. And unfortunately, what happens with many famous pastors is people kind of grip onto them more than the actual words of of Scripture that they're speaking. But I used to always love listening to him talk, right? And and like many people, you almost gain that sense of celebrity cult in the negative sense. We say, wow, that guy is so good, right? He's so awesome. He's such a man of God. And hearing hundreds and hundreds of sermons, I kind of got a a sense of who this individual was, right? You hear him talk about his stories and what he's gone through and the experiences that he has on a a week-to-week basis. But but later on in high school, I I actually got to know the family on a more personal basis. And one of the things I enjoyed is I would actually be able to go over to this pastor's house. I enjoy fellowshipping with the family and with him. And in a couple occasions, actually getting to eat meals with them and, and talking with this pastor directly. And it was such a surreal moment to talk with him there. And this sounds very dumb, and it is, but even him offering me a parfait felt like such a, a special moment, right? I'm getting a parfait from this pastor here. And all the conversations we had, as brief as they might have been, as few as they might have been, felt so much more personal than all those other sermons I had heard for years and years and years. I'm just talking with him in his living room, at his dining room table, felt like I really got to know the man, the person. Well, friends, when you look at the pages of Scripture, you're having that same kind of interpersonal connection with the Lord. You are indeed hearing his voice. You are indeed hearing him speak to you. If you're reading in your living room, it is like he is indeed there with you. And again, you have to avoid spiritualizing that in a a wrong way. There are parts of scripture that were written to Israel specifically and promises given to specific groups of people. But when you read the Bible, you can actually trust that that is God speaking to you. And for whatever reason, Yahweh designed his scripture to be the way that we actually fellowship with him. It's the way that he designed us to have a relationship with him. It is through daily reception of the Bible that we can actually come to know him. It is his way of having relationship with us. And so therefore, when you're reading the Bible, don't just read it like a checklist. Uh, You don't read it just because you need to do the good religious thing, but you read God's word because it is God himself. It's how you come to know him relationally. And because it is God's word. The second thing, because scripture is indeed God's word, this tells us the importance of reading scripture accurately. That when God speaks, he had a specific meaning in every single text. There was something he was trying to convey to us. And we need to actually do the hard work to actually know what that means. Another uh, famous passage in in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4 verse 3. Paul says there, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And we'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Right? That people will come and they will twist the meaning of Scripture. That God has one meaning in every single text. And yet people will come and they will distort the meaning. Therefore, pay attention that you may know the truth. Or as John Piper says, 
The meaning of scripture is not like putty that we can mold according to our own desires. It is the work of the Holy Spirit and carries a solid, firm, divine intention. That when God wrote the Bible, there is indeed a meaning to every single passage. And so you have to actually work to make sure you understand the truth. You know, one of the, the scenes that you often see in many Bible studies and small groups is, you know, the leader will say, well, what do you think this passage means? And one person will say, well, I think this passage means this. And the leader will say, very good. And another person will say, well, I, I think it actually might mean this. And the teacher says, very good. And a third person will say, I, I, I think it actually means this other thing. Very, very good. In other words, you go through Bible studies and everyone's giving their own interpretation or, or thought of what it means. And you all kind of affirm it because, yeah, you're actually looking at the Bible together. But the reality is that if God has spoken, if he actually had a, a meaning and intent behind every single one of his books and letters, that means you actually need to interpret it rightly. There's a right meaning and there's a wrong meaning. You have to be careful to understand what it says because if you misinterpret it, there are huge consequences. And even this morning, you heard how I mentioned two different parts of our passage where godly men can wrestle with the meaning of a text. And the, the benefit for us is the general meaning either way is the same. Right? We understand the, the main gist of what Peter's trying to say, but there are so many areas of Scripture which you know where misinterpretation can lead to terrible consequences, right? I remember talking to a lady even out here who was showing me passages of the Bible saying, look, this is proof that Jesus is not God. You have God the Father had described here, and Jesus has never directly said that. Therefore, he is not actually God. I've heard men read scriptures about divorce and love and adultery and say, look, it's actually okay if I leave my wife because of X, Y, and Z reasons in the Bible. You can twist the meaning of God's word in a way that's actually a blaspheme. And you're twisting what God has actually said. And so if the scriptures is indeed God's word, that means we need to interpret it rightly. We have to do the hard work of actually understanding grammar, of understanding the historical background, of trying to read things in its context, of trying to understand how every single author's personality comes out and how that would affect what they're actually trying to say. You have to do the hard work to study the Bible, to cut every path straight, to know what God has actually said. Because we're not just reading some letter, right? We're not just reading some book that you can interpret however you want, but if scripture isn't truly inspired by God, if this is the voice of Yahweh, then we need to know what he actually says. And thirdly, the last implication I want to bring before us is this. The importance of reading scripture holistically or reading the entire Bible as a sum, right? Not just reading parts, but the importance of actually knowing the entire of what the Bible says. You know, over this break, especially with us not being able to do as many things because of what's happening around our nation and world, uh, we've been watching a lot more movies recently. And we started to rewatch the original trilogy of Star Wars because, you know, for myself, it's been something about 20 or so years since I last saw it. I didn't really remember much. And we said, you know what, we should go back and watch some of the classics, which uh, so much of pop culture is based on. And so we've been watching through them. And we actually just finished the, the second movie, which is the fifth episode or whatever you call the empire strikes back and you know personally i i didn't think it was that great of a movie because you're going through and it's this amazing tale there's so many awesome things that are going on but there it's an awful ending right 
You find out that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father and everyone is shocked and horrified by that fact. And Luke actually gets his arm cut off, right? He doesn't even have the full access to his Jedi powers. And then all of the good people are running away, cowering in fear. And the last thing you hear is that the Empire is working on building a new Death Star that's even bigger than the previous one. It's a horrible, terrible ending. And I apologize if that's a spoiler alert, but the movie's like 100 years old, so you guys should have known it by now. It's just not a good ending, right? And I walked away disappointed. What kind of story is this? Uh, what kind of story would have all the, the good guys losing at the end and the, the bad guys were actually the one that went terrible, terrible film? And you guys know, of course, the answer, right? The story does go on. There's a third or sixth film, however you want to describe it, that actually summarizes the original trilogy. There's more that happens to the characters and, and the plot line. And, in the, and the good guys actually do win. And so you know that for many of these types of stories, you can't actually just pick a part of it and get a full grasp of what's going on, right? You can't just watch one movie of a series of nine and say, I know exactly what's going on and judge every single person and the entire narrative. You need to see the whole thing to grasp what's really going on. Well, that same truth applies to the Bible. You can't just pick a couple verses or a couple books and say, this is who God is. This is how we should live. This is the implications for how we apply the Bible to our modern life. You can't just pick and choose. You need to read all of the Bible together. Because we know, as history has told us, the people have justified horrible, horrible atrocities because they read the Bible selectively. They just pick apart and say, this is the totality of what God has said. And you think about even the institution, the horrible reality of American slavery, of how black people were owned as slaves, and how it was actually so many of the Christian pastors and Christian leaders who were upholding this institution as being okay. How they were the ones telling the, the slaves, no, look, God has established authority. That is your authority. Therefore, listen to it. Or again, the, this is instituted by the government. Therefore, we can't do anything about it. People would pick and choose passages that suited their means because they didn't understand the totality of what God had said, that he fights for the oppressed, that he cares for justice to go forth. He loves the, the weak and the marginalized. You have people who read the book of James or just the exhortations of Scripture, and they, they develop this whole works-based salvation. Right, look, James says this about the importance. You have to do this. Therefore, works is important to being saved. Or you have people in a very modern context that read passages about the importance of the family and parenting and say, look, it's okay to block out the rest of the world's influence. It's okay to be hermits in this life because we are the ones who are supreme. And there's so many more examples of this how people will take just a part of Scripture because they don't understand the whole. They justify horrible, horrible ways of living. But if we want a right understanding of who God is, if we want an accurate depiction of what is happening, of what we're supposed to do, of how we're called to live, of, of how the whole story is orchestrated, we must read the Bible holistically. We must read it together. We must read the whole thing and that's why I encourage you to read through the entire Bible over and over again. And even as Greg was mentioned this morning, we're doing the Bible plan together where we're reading the entire Bible. And I encourage you to do this because if God has spoken, 
That means, that means we must hear every single one of his words. If we want to read clearly and accurately, if we want to avoid the dangers of twisting his words and running off with just one meaning that suits our lives, we have to know everything about what he says because the Bible is God speaking to us. It is indeed the most precious diamond that this world has to offer. It's the greatest truth. It's the most valuable resource we can have because in the word of God, we have God's words to us. Now, when you read the scripture, you can trust that it is indeed the greatest authority in this life. It speaks to you more personally, more definitively than any kind of uh, personal experience you can have now. The Bible is the lamp that guides us in this world of darkness. It's the only way that we can stop ourselves from stumbling into sin and its destruction. And that scripture is the voice of God, that every single verse, every single page is his love letter to you. And therefore, we have to read it not just as a checklist, not just as something that we're called to do, because it's because of how we interact with the Lord. It is the way that we build our relationship with him. And so if you do one thing in this new year, if there's one resolution you make, if there is one commitment you have, make it be to read God's word. Again, not as an obligation, not just as a religious duty, but because you desperately thirst after it. You need it. You recognize that it is your only hope. It is the only water that you have in this parched desert land. It's the only light you have in this path of darkness. And it is God himself to us. As we begin this year in uncertainties and whatever chaos and whatever confusion, may we stay rooted in the word of God because God has spoken. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to us. And he's speaking to us as the church that we may know him and we may love him and we may follow him. Let's pray. Oh, Yahweh, as we look at the pages of your word, I pray that this message, that your words here, the, the words of this passage would not fall on deaf ears. That even if we've heard about the importance of Scripture a hundred times, that we would not allow ourselves to grow dull because of its repetition. But that every single person here would turn to your word and see it as the path of life, the, the lamp of the darkness to follow after you. And God, I pray that if, the, if there's anyone here who has not given their life over to you, that they would recognize that they are in the path of darkness, that they are stumbling even now, and that they need to repent and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, to confess him as Lord. And so be restored to you and know the path of light. And so as we begin this year, in whatever stages we may be, in positive or negative, in confusion, or darkness, Lord, we pray that you would help us as your followers, us as your church, to cling on to the truths of Scripture, that we may know and love and follow you more than anything else. And so help us, God, because we need it. We thank you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.